that you, WSBC, would come away even more motivated to stand firm in the gospel, resting in God's peace, no matter what frightening things you face together. Well, good morning. As was mentioned earlier, my name is Ryan. I'm the senior pastor at SIBC. Your sister church across the city sends you greetings. I can't believe it's already been five years since WSBC was planted out of SIBC, and it's just such a joy to be with you all this morning, and thankful to Luke Truong for preaching at SIBC, even as I'm here. You know, we pray for you all often, and it's just such a privilege to open God's Word together with you this morning. Now, as much as it's an occasion for joy, I wonder what anxieties you are facing in this season of your life. You know, if you're like me, you woke up with anxiety. Maybe you came in this morning with anxiety. I think most of us have experienced even unique anxieties this year and in the pandemic. And I think for most of us, it's comforting to know that we are not alone in our anxiety. That as we'll see in, even in our passage this morning, even the first Christians experienced similar anxieties 2,000 years ago. But far better than knowing that we're not alone in our anxiety is hearing from God on how to fight anxiety and so have his peace. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our text this morning. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, before we walk through the few verses that we're going to look at this morning, since we're kind of parachuting into the end of this letter, I want to first help us get our bearings so we know what Paul has been talking about up to this point. If you're not familiar with this letter, it's written by the Apostle Paul. He's in prison in Rome. And this church in Philippi that Paul had helped start, which you can read about in Acts 16, they love Paul. And so they send him a gift. They send him some money to help him out. And when the gift is delivered to Paul in prison, of course, he asks, you know, how's the church doing? And he's mostly encouraged by what he hears. But he also hears that the church is going through some stuff. They're bearing some heavy burdens. They feel the pain of Paul being in prison and Epaphroditus being sick. They feel the pressure of a hostile government. They feel the pull of false teachers, and they feel the push of disagreements within the church. And no doubt these burdens are weighing heavy on their minds and hearts and tempting them to much worry and anxiety. You know, these burdens, they don't sound much different from our life even today, 2,000 years removed, do they? So Paul writes this letter not only for personal reasons, to thank them for their partnership in the gospel, for giving him the gift, but also for pastoral reasons, to exhort them as individuals and as a church to stand firm and to persevere in the faith, even amidst scary, anxiety-inducing things. That's what he says in chapter 1. He says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so I may hear you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind and striving side by side for the faith, not frightened in anything. So that's kind of the big idea of the letter. And that's true 
of Paul's closing exhortations in chapter 4 that we're going to look at. He starts chapter 4 with the same idea in verse 1, stand firm, thus in the Lord. And then in verses 2 to 9, he unpacks what it looks like to stand firm with one mind and not be frightened in anything. He wants to teach them and us how to respond to burdens the right way, knowing that God is near and he will guard us with his peace. So let me first read our passage. We're going to look at verses 4 to 9, and then we'll just walk through them together. Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Well, having read our verses this morning, you know, Paul gives four main exhortations on how to stand firm in the faith. So my plan for us this morning is just to walk through each exhortation together and see how they connect to one another and how they connect to us standing firm. So uh, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you the four now, and then I'll repeat them as I go along. So first one is be joyful. That's verse four. Point number two is be gentle. Point number three is pray. And point number four is ponder. And as we walk through these exhortations together, my hope is that we Christians would not only be challenged and encouraged as individuals to stand firm in our faith, but also you as a church. That you, WSBC, would come away even more motivated to stand firm in the gospel, resting in God's peace, no matter what frightening things you face together. So let's look at point number one. Be joyful. Be joyful. In verse four, Paul exhorts them to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now, this double command to rejoice, it sounds a bit random at first, doesn't it? Until you realize that Paul's been sounding this note of joy throughout this letter, some 12 times. So this command is Paul's way of saying, Hey, I've been saying this, and I'm going to say it again, and I'll keep on saying it into the future, because there will always be troubles ahead. And actually, this isn't the first time he said a double rejoice. If you were to look back at chapter 1, verse 18, he uses this same sentence pattern. But there he's talking about himself rejoicing in his suffering, and now here he's talking about them as a church rejoicing in their suffering which is an important thing to notice. See, he's speaking to the whole church. You can't see it in English, but rejoice here is plural. He's saying, you all rejoice. Or if you're from Texas, like John McLaughlin, I am, you say, y'all, y'all rejoice. And that's true of all these exhortations in this passage. We often tend to read these verses only in personal terms. And while there's certainly an individual aspect to them. We have to be doing this as individuals. We must read these in corporate terms to fully 
get what Paul is saying to us. Because a church that is doing these things together is going to be a unified church that stands firm in one spirit, striving side by side, which is what Paul wants of them. So Paul not only says to rejoice, but he clarifies who to rejoice in and how often. Notice the content, the focus of our rejoicing is the Lord. Friends, this is easy to miss. You know, I've often heard people misquote this verse. You know, they're talking to somebody who's going through a difficult time, and they want to be helpful. So they say, well, you know what Paul says, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice, as if they're being helpful. Yet they leave out the most important part. Rejoice in the Lord always. Because the only way we experience true, deep, lasting joy that the Bible talks about is, being by, is by being connected to God, the source of all joy. God is the happiest being in the universe. He eternally delights in all of his infinite perfections. There is nothing that brings God down. And if we're united to him through faith in Jesus, his spirit lives in us. So we can experience a measure of that eternal joy that the Father and the Son and the Spirit share with one another. And Paul says in Galatians 5 that joy is a supernatural fruit of God's Spirit. And we feel joy when the Spirit helps us to see the beauty of God in the gospel, to view our lives and our circumstances in this scary world in light of that happy reality of God. That Jesus has overcome the world, and our stories, they really have the happiest of endings. And that future joy that we will experience one day in heaven reaches back into the present now. So we can experience happiness even now in the midst of profound sorrow and suffering. Right? We, we don't rejoice in the suffering. We rejoice in the midst of the suffering as we rejoice in the Lord. And as we await the day when Jesus comes back and our sorrow will turn into joy forever. Well, not only are we to rejoice in the Lord, but we're to do it always. Now, you may be thinking, Paul can't really mean that. He doesn't know how hard my life is right now. He doesn't understand these lockdowns that we've been in. He doesn't know the pain of COVID or cancer. He can't understand the pressure I'm under in this failing economy, having lost my job and my business. He can't know the grief I feel as my kids don't want anything to do with me and aren't walking with the Lord. Really, Paul, rejoice always? Well, friends, if you think that, if you think Paul can't understand that, you're mistaken. Paul knew difficulty and sorrow and suffering, didn't he? He faced hunger. He talks about it later in chapter 4. He faced sickness. He was abandoned by people he thought were ministry partners. He was stoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned multiple times. He's writing this letter from prison. That was worse than the lockdowns that we've experienced, I'm sure. And in the end, Paul was killed for preaching Christ. So Paul knew profound sorrow but that never snuffed out his joy. 
Because when our happiness is rooted in God and all God has done and will do for us in Christ, then there is always reason to rejoice, even when our circumstances go from bad to worse. So Paul could write things like in 2 Corinthians 6, that he's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Or in Romans 8, For I consider these present sufferings not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. So Christian, are you finding joy in the Lord, even in hardship? Did you know that rejoice in the Lord is the most frequent command in the entire Bible? To be happy in God? Have you ever thought about that? That joy is essential to faith in Christ? This feeling of, of delight in our soul from the Spirit as we glory in the gospel. And since it's a fruit of the Spirit, you can't produce it on your own. But it will come as you pursue God in His promises, in His people, and in prayer. You know, some of you may be lacking joy recently because you're not soaking in God's promises in His Word. Or maybe you're not communing regularly with God in prayer. Or maybe you're not fellowshipping with God's people. Others of you may be lacking joy because you're looking for it in your circumstances rather than in the Lord. Of course, lacking joy can involve other more complex issues, including sickness and just issues with our physical bodies. So if you're struggling with ongoing depression or lack of joy, please talk to an elder or member so that you can get the appropriate care. But I want to emphasize the corporate aspect of this command. Because often that's how joy comes, right? Through being encouraged by our brothers and sisters in the Lord, which helps us stand firm in the faith. Because if a church is generally happy and satisfied in God, they're going to be less likely to quarrel and dispute and experience disunity. They're going to continue to strive side by side as Paul wants us to. So may you members of WSBC do as Hebrews 10.25 says, not neglect meeting together, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day draw near. Well, with that, let's look at the second exhortation. Point number two, be gentle. Be gentle. This is verse five. So Paul goes on in verse five to say, let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to all people. The Lord is at hand. I think gentleness is a better word than some of your translations may say reasonableness. Though this is a, a deep word, it contains many ideas. It's the same word used in 1 Timothy 3 to describe a character quality for elders. It's the opposite of being quarrelsome. It's also the opposite of what Paul describes back in chapter 2 of Philippians. When he says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. So this is what it means to be gentle, not, not quarrelsome, not grumbling and disputing. And our gentleness should show both in public and in private. It should be made known, he says, to all people, to everyone. Now notice how Paul again grounds his exhortation in God. Just as we're to rejoice in the Lord, 
So we're to be gentle because the Lord is at hand. If you're reading the ESV, it has two sentences there, but there's really an implied because between them. In other words, the Lord being at hand is the reason we're to let our gentleness be made known to all. Now, the Lord being at hand, that can mean either that the Lord is near to us spiritually, or it can mean that he's near as in he's going to come again soon. Both are true in Scripture. So we can be gentle with all because the Lord is near to us spiritually and because he will come again soon to right every wrong. So, Christian, are you being gentle to all? Or are you prone to quarreling and disputing? I think for many of us, we tend to be more gentle with strangers than with those close to us, to our shame. And I think the times we tend to not be gentle are when we're anxious, right? When we're late and we got to get the kids out the door, we're harsh with them. When we're stressing over that big work project, we're short with our coworkers. The list could go on and on. So when and how does your anxiety lead you to not be gentle with others? You know, I also want you to notice a connection between verses 5 and 6. We'll get to 6 in a moment, but the phrase, be made known, is repeated in both of those verses. He says, let your gentleness be made known to all people, and let your anxious requests be made known to God. Now, why do I point that out? Well, I think there's a really helpful corrective here. And that is that we need to be careful how we express our anxieties to other people. I think there can be a temptation to think that, well, one of the main reasons I have close relationships is so I can just vent to those people. After all, we think that's what my spouse or parent is for. But Paul, here in Peter in 1 Peter 5, when he says, cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you, they seem to say differently. It seems to me the emphasis in Scripture is to take our anxieties and our frustrations and our burdens to God. Cast them on him rather than casting them on others. Again, we'll talk more about that in the next verses, but... Here Paul says gentleness is what we make known to others, our friends, our spouse, our parents. And anxious requests are what we make known to God. So if you're going to vent to someone, vent to God. Now that's not to say we shouldn't be open and real with other people. But it is to say that being raw with people, I don't think is a biblical virtue. Gentleness is. And why is that? Well, think about it. We are all weak. We can only take so much of other people's burdens, right? We can't handle what God can handle of people casting their burdens constantly on us. See, unlike us, God doesn't have any weakness. As one scholar put it, God is the only one whose shoulder is broad enough to cry on and whose chest is big enough to beat on. So I think a mark of standing firm in the faith, as Paul wants us to, is less frustrated venting to others and more letting our anxieties and requests be made known to God. 
So if you're prone to kind of word vomit on people without thought to them, I think Paul is gently exhorting you to repent of that, to put on the spiritual fruit of gentleness and self-control. Well, let's look at the third exhortation. Point number three, to pray. To pray. Verses six and seven. Now that Paul has exhorted us to joy and gentleness, he turns to prayer and peace. Verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now at this point, you might be thinking, well, surely there's an exception to, to nothing, right? Like be, be anxious for nothing, no thing, really, Paul? Well, yeah. You say, okay, but what about this life or death issue, Paul? Be anxious for no thing. Well, how about this big decision that could alter my future? Be anxious for no thing. But what about family, job, ministry, school, money, health, friends, future? Be anxious for no thing. But there must be some kind of nuance in the Greek, Paul. No, as it turns out, no thing means no thing in Greek. So if you're like me and you keep a lot of folders to file stuff in, guess what goes in your anxiety folder? No thing. Guess what goes in your prayer folder? Everything. See, Paul gives us the medicine for anxiety. When he says, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer is the medicine for sinful worry. Now, prayer here is the general word for talking with God, and supplication just means to make requests. So Paul explains what kind of prayer helps relieve anxiety. It's ongoing talking with God, where we thank Him, for who he is, what he's done for us, and we ask good things of him so that we're not anxious. Now, I love that phrase, let your requests be made known to God, because the verb there is in the passive tense. Now, that doesn't mean we're to be passive and do nothing. It's the idea that our anxious requests, they want to come up. So we should let them. They're like ping pong balls in water. You, you try to push them down, but they're going to float up to the surface no matter what. So we shouldn't try to bury our concerns deep inside or minimize them or fake a smile and pretend like we have it all together. That's never going to work. As I said earlier, while there are appropriate times to let our concerns be made known to others, of course, we should always, Paul says, let them be made known to God. They're in us and they're, they're going to need to come up. And as we do that, verse 7 tells us the glorious result of releasing our anxieties to God in prayer. It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is one of the sweetest promises in all the Bible. And this idea is really all over the New Testament. Did you know the most repeated command in the New Testament is to not worry. Don't be anxious. Don't fear. Don't worry. Why is that? Well, we're told all throughout the New Testament, because God is with you. 
He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's guarding you. He's keeping you until the day of Christ. He's prepared an eternal place for you in heaven with him. We don't need to simply worry. I also love the phrase, which surpasses all understanding. It means God's peace goes beyond any thoughts that we can think up for solutions to our own problems. So no use trying to overthink the issue with anxious thoughts. Not only that, but God's peace goes beyond what makes sense in difficult circumstances. So when people see us not freaking out as we face trials, they take notice, don't they? They say, that's not normal. Why aren't you freaking out? God's peace surpasses all understanding. And when Paul says God's peace will guard our hearts and minds, he's talking about our emotions and our thoughts. The heart often stands for emotions in Scripture, and the mind, our thoughts. So God's peace will guard our emotions from spiraling out of control and our thoughts from being held captive by lies that lead to distrust and more anxiety. And since hearts and minds is plural here, it's not just an inner peace that guards us individually. It's also the church collectively guarded as God's peace reaches out into the web of our relationships, binding us tighter together so we maintain peace and unity as a church. So before we go to the final exhortation, I want to linger on some application here. First about anxiety or worry. You know, we need to remember that all people struggle with anxiety. Not too long ago, someone close to me spent several days in the hospital because of a severe anxiety attack. As I said earlier, most of us have experienced maybe a unique degree of anxiety during the pandemic. Just this past week, I myself struggled with anxiety as I'm writing a sermon about not being anxious. So it's not a matter of if, but how often and how much we will worry. And one survey found that 20% of Americans say crippling anxiety is a regular part of their life. 20% crippling. So what can we say about anxiety biblically? Well, we know not all worry is sinful. We know this for many reasons, but one is that Paul uses the same word in chapter 2 to describe Timothy's genuine concern or anxiety for the Philippian church. And he says that's a good thing. We also know that anxiety can, in some cases, be caused by our biology. So again, if that describes you, please talk to an elder if you think you need help. I want to be clear that those are real and complex issues that I don't think Scripture dismisses. But even if our anxiety has a biological aspect to it, I still think the spiritual aspect will always be there because we're spiritual beings just as we're physical beings. And that needs to be addressed. And that's what I think Paul is doing here. So that's what I want to focus on, that the kind of sinful worry Paul is talking about that I think we experience most often. A worry that goes beyond appropriate concern, like Timothy had for the Philippians, to the loss of peace and trust in God. We often experience sinful anxiety when we feel what's most valuable to us is being threatened. Right? The, the, the worry needle 
of our soul tends to rise as we think we're going to lose something we deeply value or, or not get something that we desperately want. But Paul says we should never be anxious like that. Why? Well, because it's both sinful and unhelpful. It's sinful because it's rooted in a lack of trust in God. When we're anxious like this, we're assuming that God can't help us and or he doesn't care to help us. We assume that God won't give us the grace to endure whatever trial or suffering that we might face when we actually need it. See, God promises to give us the grace to endure trials right when we need it, not before. So when we worry, we're we're anxiously playing out our problems in our minds before we're ever given the grace to endure them, as if God won't give it. So that's why this kind of worry is sinful. It it views our struggles through, through a lens that doesn't let in the light of God's grace and power. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, that unbelievers, the world worry, worries like this. But we shouldn't because God cares for our needs. Not only is this anxiety sinful, it's, it's also unhelpful. Because worry doesn't help or solve anything, does it? It just hinders us from standing firm and, and often leads us to bad decisions. Again, Jesus says, which of you being anxious can add a single hour to your life? He's saying worry doesn't improve your situation or your life. So we should put off sinful and unhelpful worry and put on appropriate concern and peace through prayer. That Paul says, be anxious for nothing and pray about everything tells us something. It tells us there is no issue big enough to justify sinful worry and there is no issue small enough that God doesn't care about it. What a, what a wonderful thing. There's nothing you can bring to God so often that he'll get tired of hearing about it, or so big that he can't do something about it, or so small that he won't want to listen to it. What an amazing God that we trust and worship. Now you may be wondering, well, how can you tell if your concern has gone beyond appropriate to sinful? Well, let me give you a few ways. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Appropriate concern trusts God. Sinful worry trusts self or circumstance. Appropriate concern issues from faith. Worry from doubt. Appropriate concern promotes constructive action. Worry prevents action or or promotes destructive action. Appropriate concern is usually welcomed by others. Worry usually isn't welcomed by others. Appropriate concern is motivated by love. Worry is motivated by fear. Appropriate concern has an eternal focus. Worry has a temporary focus. Appropriate concern strengthens relationships. Worry weakens them. Appropriate concern focuses on what's known today. Worry on the unknowns of tomorrow. So the goal is to have appropriate concern while we seek God in prayer. 
And as we renew our anxious thoughts by truth, we'll, we'll better understand ourselves and God and, and be a better friend to help bear the burdens of others. Second thing I want to see before we move on is the importance of prayer. You know, there's so many practical things we can do to fight anxiety, but I think Paul is saying the most important is prayer. You know, as a pastor friend of mine back in the U.S., has said, the irony is that most of our anxious thoughts are actually an inner dialogue of prayer, aren't they? It's just with ourselves and not God. You thought about that? We're essentially praying to ourselves rather than with God. We're praying to ourselves about our problems, even though we know we can't ultimately do anything about them. Instead of praying to God who can. You know, if we spent all the time pouring out the same things to God that we pour over in our minds, that would change our life. Prayer to God is the primary means of undermining sinful anxiety. It's the right response to our burdens. And it's the most helpful response because it forces us to, to slow down, to renew our thoughts according to truth. And Paul tells us two specific kinds of prayer that, that keep anxiety in check. He says supplication, making requests, and thanksgiving. So remember in supplication that your requests are humble requests. They're not demands of God. They're not expectations of God. We don't attach strings to try to obligate God to fulfill a certain request, no matter how good we think it is. Because our perspective is limited, isn't it? God's perspective is not limited. Only God can see what is best for us in any circumstance. So our requests need to be humble. So that's supplication. What about thanksgiving? Why does Paul throw that in? Well, because thankfulness reminds us that God gives us everything we need. We don't deserve it. And it reminds us how many requests God has answered in the past. When we're thankful, we're, we're in part thanking God for answering past requests, which motivates us to keep letting our requests be made known to Him, to keep praying, because we know He's going to answer them according to His perfect will. You know, the course, corporate aspect of prayer is crucial as well. This is why you guys and, and us at SIBC, we do a prayer of petition and thanks on Sunday mornings. This is why you pray, I assume, in home groups and at Bible studies. Corporate prayer has a multiplying effect to our faith, doesn't it? However much private prayer may decrease our anxiety and increase our peace, corporate prayer just multiplies that. Because hearing how God has answered the requests of others in the church motivates us to pray more, doesn't it? We see He's not just Working in our life, he's working profoundly in others' lives. And hearing the petitions of others that sound a lot like our own, it reminds us we're not alone in our struggles. So friends, as one of my pastor friends back in America has said, train your spiritual reflexes to pray whenever you feel anxiety. And God will fulfill his promise to use your prayers as a means of guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. God knows your troubles and anxieties before you make them known. He's the only one who, who always cares to listen, who's always able to do something, and who always knows what to do for your greatest good 
and his glory. The more we cast our worries on him, the more his care and strength are shown and the more that he is glorified. But with that, let's look at the fourth and final exhortation. Point number four is to ponder. Ponder, verses 8 and 9. So far, Paul has exhorted us to joy and gentleness and prayer, and now in verses 8 and 9, he turns to our thinking. He's going to exhort us to ponder and to practice virtuous things. And in verse 8, he opens with finally, which just means with what remains. He's not changing topics here. He's continuing on the same train of thought. He's saying, now that I've explained how your minds are guarded by casting out anxious thoughts and prayer, I'm going to tell you what goes in your mind. So anxiety goes out. Now I'm going to say what goes in. Because peace doesn't come just by emptying our minds and thinking about nothing, right? Some religions teach that. That's not what the Bible teaches. We need to fill our mind with good and true thoughts. That's what Paul exhorts us to here. Now, how he says it is interesting. He gives a list of virtues. And I don't think this list is exhaustive because there are other virtue lists in the New Testament. And scholars debate whether these virtues came from Greek and Roman culture or they're purely Christian. I actually don't really think it matters because they all find their ultimate end in God and the gospel. So Paul says, we're to think about, ponder, dwell on these things, whatever is true, whatever is biblical, fact, reality, whatever is honorable, things that bring honor and not shame, whatever is just, things that are right and not wrong, whatever is pure, nothing polluted or or debased or with mixed motives. Whatever is lovely, things that bring delight, not misery. Whatever is commendable, things that are admirable and not shameful. Whatever is excellent, the highest things. Whatever is praiseworthy, things you would celebrate and not condemn. This is space our minds should live in from day to day. Now, when it comes to virtue lists, while there can be value in kind of considering each of these virtues separately, I think a better way to understand them is to see them collectively as a poetic way to refer to Jesus, since he perfectly embodies all of these virtues. So Paul is saying, think on things that are honorable and pure and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy, like Jesus is. Then in verse 9, he says, These things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, these same virtues, practice them, and the God of peace will be with you. These virtues shouldn't just live in our mind. They should be lived out in our daily life as a means of experiencing God's peace. So, Christian, how is your thought renewal going? Paul says in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. So if there's something in your life that is hindering you from thinking on these kinds of things that Paul is talking about, or if you're not renewing sinful thoughts with virtuous ones, then you should make a change. 
right? We shouldn't expect to feel peace from God or at peace with Him if we're not renewing our thoughts. Now again, the corporate aspect here is so crucial because we need help to do this. We need one another. We need one another to, to learn how to think and live virtuously. Right? We need to get around people who are living this way so we can learn how to live it ourselves and, and learn how to set an example for others to follow like Paul did. As much as we're pondering and practicing virtuous things, our churches will be unified. They will stand firm, striving side by side with one mind. Well, friends, we've covered a lot of ground in these four exhortations. So to close, I want to focus on the idea that connects these verses together. If you look at verses 7 and 9, these two verses kind of frame this whole thing. The peace of God and the God of peace. You friends, remember that God's peace does not automatically come to us, does it? It was accomplished for us when the Prince of Peace walked into the city of peace, Jerusalem, and procured our peace by dying on the cross for sinners like you and me. It was Jesus who, though he experienced deep sorrow as a man, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus was perfectly gentle and made his gentleness known to all. He says in Matthew 11, Come to me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus always showed appropriate concern, even to the point of sweating drops of blood before he was crucified. Yet he was never sinfully anxious. He always prayed and entrusted himself to his heavenly Father. And Jesus pondered and practiced all that is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely because being fully God, he is also all those things in his very nature. And Jesus died for all of our joyless distrust, all of our harshness, all of our sinful anxiety, all of our impure thoughts and wicked deeds. And then he rose to new life, making a way for us to be at peace with God and one another and in every circumstance if we continue to trust him and repent of our sin. But friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I exhort you to be at peace with God Today, through faith in Jesus' life and death and resurrection for you. See, the Bible says, because of your sin, you are at enmity with God. But in love, He offers you full forgiveness and peace if you'll repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. You'll, you'll never experience the joy and peace that Paul is talking about here unless you repent and place your faith in Christ. So I pray you would do that today. For us Christians, I really can't say anything better than what Paul has already exhorted us to in this passage. So as we rejoice in and pray to and ponder our Lord, may we all stand in faith and unity until we enter into the joy of our Master. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus has purchased that peace, on the cross for us. And we ask you to help us, even this week, by your Spirit to rejoice in you, 
to be gentle to all, to put off sinful anxiety through prayer, and to think on Christ's honoring things, trusting that you as the God of peace will be with us as you promised to until the day we enter into your eternal joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.